This is Greg. Hey, Greg. How are you? It is uh, James Lowe. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? Pretty good, actually. Give me a couple seconds here. I'm going to bring in our other panelists here on our broadcast, and we will uh, get things off and running. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yes, I, I, I think we are going to have a blast today, and uh, we are going to bring everybody in here on... Skype and uh, get everybody locked in here. Welcome to our broadcast, Coast to Coast, Border to Border on TuneIn, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, and uh, we have got some great guests coming up. Uh, we have a, a fantastic, fantastic panel lined up for this hour of our broadcast day, and uh, Don Mazzella has joined us, best-selling author and uh, political columnist. Also, Dan Perkins from uh, Newsmax. He's a uh, uh, the Hill, he, he's he's noted all over the place. And uh, we're also going to be joined by IQ Rizzoli, I understand, as well. Now, um, Greg, go ahead and give us a brief introduction on yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, everything. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Greg Newburn. I'm the State Policy Director for Families Against Mandatory Minimums, or FAM. Uh, we're a nonprofit group based in Washington, D.C. We've been around since 1991, and we advocate for fair and proportional sentencing laws and individual sentencing laws uh, at the federal and state level. And uh, looking forward to a good discussion. I, I live and work down in Florida and, and work mostly on the state policy, but, uh, but FAM is involved in, uh, in federal sentencing debates and state sentencing debates around the country. So thanks for having me on. Well, Dan, uh, kick us off here, my friend. I know you've got some questions. Sure. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. Can you hear? Thank you. I wish to make sure you could hear me. So, uh, where did you work in Florida? Because I'm li- I live in Florida. Uh, I live in Gainesville. Did you work? Oh, you do. Okay, I live in I live in Paradise, called Sanibel Island, down in uh, Fort Myers. Um, oh, sure, yeah. So, it, t- t- when you talk about fair sentencing, um, what do you mean by that? Well, I think what we mean is a, is a structural system in which sentences are proportional to the offense and, most importantly, individualized to the offender and to the crime, uh, rather than arbitrary and set in statute based only on the crime committed. We think that judges are in the best position to take into consideration the totality of the circumstances and impose a sentence that, that fits the offender, that fits the victim that fits the crime committed in, under the totality of the circumstances. So when we say fair sentencing, we, we're referring more to the, the structure of the system of sentencing rather than to any given sentence, right? Uh, there, there could be a fair and proportional sentence that is life without parole. There could be a fair and proportionate sentence that is probation. And really, it's just contingent on the facts of the case that we think that a system that gives the judge the the power and authority to impose that sentence is the most fair system that you can design. So you would you would be you would be opposed to statutory sentences. If you commit rape and there's a, a uh, and you're and you're found guilty and the and the and the law says you get twenty five years you would you would say the judge has the right to decide what the penalty should be that there shouldn't be statutes that dictate what the penalty is 
Yeah, I don't think anybody would be opposed to having statutes authorize ranges or guidelines or, you know, society believes that, a, that this is a felony rather than a misdemeanor and so on. I don't think there's any problem with statutes reflecting particular societal values that, that show the severity of the offense. Um, what, what I do have a problem with is, is a statute that, that puts a floor on the sentence and says there are absolutely no circumstances under which a judge may depart lower than that statutory floor. Um, and that goes for, for all crimes, frankly. It, it, doesn't, it really doesn't matter what the crime is. The principle is the same across crime. Um, our position is, like, is just that if there is a crime that is so heinous, that's so offensive, you know, violent and so on, uh, that a judge is going to be willing to, to take that into consideration and impose an appropriate sentence. I mean, we have judges for specifically that reason. We trust them to be able to use their experience and use their wisdom to say this person is a danger to society and therefore should be incapacitated, potentially for exceedingly lengthy sentences. And this person over here might not be in that position, even though the, the, the particular elements of the offense have been met. There are mitigating circumstances. There are some circumstances that were not foreseen by the legislature when the law was passed. Perhaps a victim doesn't want this person to go to prison for that long and so on. So, so yes, I mean, uh, we have no problem with statutes providing guidelines and ranges, but we do think that judges ought to be given some latitude in sentencing to take into consideration the totality of the circumstances that might have escaped legislators' minds when they crafted the sentences in the first place. Um, uh, okay, let me let me ask you another question because I I, I do have a um, a practical I think what I would consider a practical objection to what you're saying. And let me let me try and be specific. Sure. Um, the Ninth Circuit, sometimes referred to as the Ninth Circus in California, <laughs> is notoriously regarded as the most liberal circuit court in the nation. And that if any liberal cause wants to sue about a law on the books or whatever that they don't feel is, that is appropriate, they will go to the Ninth Circuit to file a charge. Now, there are district courts under the Ninth Circuit circuit in all circuits. Let me respectfully disagree with judicial review, and I'll give you an example of why. I don't believe that, for example, the judge, the, the district judge in Seattle, Washington, had the right to make the decision of what foreign policy should be for the United States. When he decided that the immigration law, which the Supreme Court ruled on in 1978, and the Congress passed the law in 1981, giving the Congress the right to make immigration law, and at the same time, giving the power of the executive branch to enforce the law, there is, there's, there's no rationale that I can come up with that judges should be in the position of legislating from the bench. If you don't have guidelines and bases, then my concern is that there are 
there will be judges in certain parts of the country who will interpret the law or rewrite the law to whatever they think should be right. Without guidelines and, and, and stipulations, you could have chaos in the courts. Yeah, you know, and let me let me say at the outset, there, there's nothing that you've said that I disagree with at all. Uh, you know, I I think that uh, judicial activism is a real problem when it comes to judges substituting their political bias for merely interpreting the law as it's written. Uh, and my boss, the president of FAM, Kevin Ring, has now edited two books on Justice Scalia's jurisprudence and shares that worldview. I assure you. So there, there's nothing in, in what we're advocating that would allow the sort of lawlessness in the in the judiciary when it comes to interpreting law rather than legislating from the bench. We we certainly share that uh, that philosophy with everything you've described. What we're talking about is limited narrowly to the to the realm of criminal sentencing and and allowing judges under the law, in other words, having statutes themselves provide for the kinds of discretion that we're describing, uh, to, to provide for sentencing guidelines, sentencing ranges, and then, and then articulating the circumstances under which judges may depart from those guidelines. Uh, to, you know, in other words, to say you can sentence a defendant for this offense from anywhere in this range, and then if you'd like to depart from that range, you have to justify it based on the following factors. Uh, so we don't advocate for judges going outside of the law or substituting what what they believe uh, for what the law requires. We want legislation uh, to articulate what judges need to consider when when imposing a sentence. What we're trying to say is that we shouldn't go too far in the other direction, which is the legislature uh, taking over a traditional function of the judiciary, which is sentencing criminal defendants. Here, in this case, it's actually sort of judicial activism in reverse. I would I would call this legislative activism, and it's a sort of a violation of the separation of powers on the other end. Sentencing criminal right. defendants is traditionally a judicial function. Here, you have the legislature right. usurping that function and substituting its own wisdom ex ante for the wisdom of the courts in its, tradi- in its traditional function. I'm going to jump what, in what here. Oh, Dan, I'm going to jump in here because um, I'm a little confused. Um, you know, lately it seems to be all the time. But um, you're advocating saying right now our laws say, let's say, say for robbery, you can go anywhere from two to fifteen years. Are you saying that you don't want any minimums or any maximums, and and leaving it to the discretion of the judge uh, for? say, for a 17-year-old for one, and maybe for a hardened criminal a different t- term. Am I hearing you correctly? I, I think that's actually a decent nutshell view of what I'm describing. I, I don't have a problem, though, with, with the statute saying that, uh, say, armed robbery is an offense for which the guideline range is 5 to 10 years or 10 to 20 years, for instance. But I do think that, that it should have some capacity to allow judges to say that there are outlier cases where where simply the fact that a crime was committed is not sufficient to warrant the sentence that there has to be there has to be some mechanism that says you know what this one where it just doesn't make sense there you know um consider drug trafficking or dui manslaughter or something there are minimum sentences for all these these cases well uh there are dozens of cases of dui manslaughter 
where the victim is a friend or, or a family member of the, of the perpetrator, and these people are saying, we don't want him to go to prison for 10 years. We don't want this. You know, we, we, we would prefer that he take a different track. We don't want to ruin his life, and the law has no mechanism by which the judge can take into consideration the, the uh, wishes of the victim. Or in drug trafficking cases where there might be a 15 or 25 year sentence because when the law was written they had Pablo Escobar in mind, but meanwhile the person that they actually catch is some low level drug addict who had too many too many pills on himself or something. And but again the law doesn't allow the judge to take into consideration the circumstances that, of that offense. So again we don't have a problem with guideline ranges. Uh, we just think that the judge ought to be able to take into consideration some of the circumstances that might not be built into the statute. Well, for years, liberals have been saying that whenever there's been this uh, uh, discretions, as you as you mentioned, that um, the sentences, the differences in average sentence between white and the black uh, defendants has been so severe as to make everything out of whack. Uh, how mm -hmm. do you uh, deal with that? <clears throat> You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I hear over and over again is that uh, mandatory sentences are racist. Uh, and what people forget is that back in the 80s, it was the Congressional Black Caucus who was advocating for mandatory minimums. They're the ones who wanted uh, the 100 to 1 crack and powder disparity for cocaine sentences. They wanted mandatory sentences for gun crimes and drug trafficking for precisely the reason that you articulated. They, they thought well, the white guys are getting off with a slap on the wrist and they're, they're throwing black guys away for 20 years and so on. So they wanted these mandatory minimums to try to equalize the playing field. Well, that happened, of course, and then the U.S. Sentencing Commission studied this and realized that not only had, had mandatory minimums not solved the problem, but racial disparities had actually worsened under the system of mandatory minimums. And the reason is you just it's impossible to get rid of discretion. Okay, you, it, this this fantasy that you can have a system of sentencing that is void of any discretion is just that. It's a fantasy. The only question is, who's going to have the discretion? Is it going to be the prosecutor, the state attorney, the district attorney, the U.S. attorney, or is it going to be the judge? Our position is that given the relative roles in the process, a prosecutor being an interested party in the outcome, a person who's on one side of the adversarial system, that that person shouldn't necessarily have all the discretion in the system, but the person who is actually tasked with being the neutral arbiter in the case should have the discretion when it's all said and done. The person who's heard all the circumstances of the offense and knows the offender and the crime and the victim and so on. So you can't ever get rid of discretion. The only question is who's going to have it and, and how are they going to exercise it. Uh, but I do think it's, it's interesting that, that this narrative has been built up, that uh, especially among the left, uh, that, that mandatory minimums and so on have been a creature of the right uh, as a tool of racial oppression, when the truth is they're just as much a tool of the left as a way to, to correct perceived racial disparities. Uh, and that's a lesson that, that many on the left have forgotten through the years, but it, nevertheless it's true. Then uh, I'd like to ask one more question. I'll turn it back to you. In the case of this doctor in Michigan that um, was sentenced to, I don't know, 20 consecutive uh, life sentences that's it to me seemed over overreach and uh, 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 a clear example of where the judge was just ma making a statement rather than uh, dealing out punishment 
how do you uh, under your th- rationale um, you, we would be seeing more of things like this well potentially although I, I have to say it's it's a little bit funny when you have to defend from both sides right uh, usually we defend <laughs> against the claim that judges are, will be too lenient uh, and therefore you have to have you have to take away all of their discretion because if you don't then they'll just let everybody off on a technicality the truth is, more more often than not, they are more likely to be less lenient and, and, and uh, err on the side of more punishment rather than less, because nobody wants to be the judge that let the guy out and then the guy goes and commits murder or something. In a case like that, like, like you described, uh, I do think that there should be some sort of mechanism in the process to check judges as well. Unfortunately, it's turtles all the way down in a way, because the, the mechanism for that is appellate review. So in order to check the behavior of one judge, you ultimately have to just go to other judges and then ultimately maybe up to the Supreme Court. Uh, But I do think that there should be some sort of abusive discretion standard that's built into the law so that if you have a judge who gives a sentence that's either wildly too harsh or much too lenient, it can be reviewed uh, either by the defendant or by the state. And you can have a, a panel of judges take a look at it and say, okay, is this a guideline sentence? Is this within the range? Is it wildly out of the range in one way or the other? And did the judge articulate any sort of reasons for that deviation? Uh, were the facts of the case so heinous to, uh, to justify this upward departure, uh, you know, many, many life sentences? Or were the facts of the case such that it was a, that a mitigating sentence or, or uh, a sentence below the guidelines was justified? The point, I think, is that you have to have these internal checks on power um, you have to have mechanisms in there such that no single party has all the power in the process. And right now we've got a system where almost in, the entire power in the judicial process rests in the prosecutor's hand. The, the, the power of the judiciary, the power of the legislature even in a lot of cases, has been stripped completely and has been given to the executive branch. And we want a system that, that much we think much better reflects the system of the founders uh, where there is a separation of powers, where each branch stays in its lane and does what it does best and provides checks on the power of the other. And in a case like you described, I think you can have uh, several different institutional checks to make sure either, A, that doesn't happen, or, B, if it does, it can be corrected um, in, in all swiftness. Back does to you, it, Dan. Thank you. You know how I took over the show here, Jim? Um uh, hey, that's that's fine. You're asking good questions. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. Um, the, 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 I got a quick point and then a, then a question. Quick point about what Don has just brought up. Uh, there is a process. There is a review process. If if the defendant didn't believe that. 20 continuous life sentences was an appropriate punishment for whatever his or her crime was, there's an appeal process, and it can go to the appellate court, and it can go be subject to review, and you could have three judges, five judges, nine judges review the sentence to see if it was reasonable or excessive, and they can overturn the either the sentence or the case. But there is a process. But that said, let me move on. I don't know whether you have a, the statistic that I'm looking for, but if you did, it would be really helpful. Do you have a sense of the number of felonies that are charged in the United States ever go to trial? 
Uh, I don't have the specific information, but it's it's fewer than five percent. Um, I mean, it is it's a vanishingly small number that so, actually reaches so the final stage. Okay, so so what happens in a plea bargain? The prosecutor offers to the defendant a plea. The defendant either decides to accept it or his counsel comes back with a counteroffer. And if they agree on a plea bargain, they simply walk into court and defense, defense and prosecution uh, present to the judge that there's been a plea bargain for five years and the judge asks the defendant, is that acceptable to you? Yes. Gavel, next. So 95% of the time, what you are asking about never gets to the judge. It's going to be decided. Now, take that, and let me take it one step further. Actually, the two issues. First issue, under the Obama administration, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, told the the Justice Department attorneys, as it related to illegal immigration, in essence, you have prosecutorial discretion as to whether or not you're going to press charges or not. He gave to the, the district attorneys and the federal attorneys the decision as to whether or not they were going to enforce the law. That lack of enforcement in the law gave us greater immigration illegally and greater crime. So the prosecutors and the chief law enforcement officer of the United States gave discretionary powers to the state's attorney or the U.S. government attorney as to whether or not they were going to prosecute the case. That, I think, is wrong. I think if the Justice Department is charged with enforcing the law, they enforce the law. Point two, the shooting that took place here in Florida. The school was rated to be one of the safest schools in the state of Florida, which was, in fact, bogus. The school was in a program where if the school and the police did not report the crimes, the crime rate in the school went down and the school received monetary compensation that if it had crime rates within a certain guideline, they could get money. And so what happened was, in many schools that are participating in this program, serious crimes are being committed the, the, the perpetrators are not being charged, and the school is actually being compensated for the fact that they're not pressing charges against a particular student. Again, if that happens, the judge never gets a chance to come into play in either of my two examples. So if only 5% of the cases ever get to the judge, I don't see how your your changes that you want to take place with it, which are only 5% of the trials, and then we have the Justice Department who's given prosecutorial discretion as to whether they're going to pressure, prosecute or not, and then the other Justice Department program where, where schools are rewarded for not reporting felonies to the police 
so that they get good safety numbers? Yeah, yeah, I'll say a couple of things about about both of those things. Uh, on the one hand, to, to your first point, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I, th I think that the executive branch exists for one purpose only, and that's to enforce the law. And if there's any sort of blanket uh, direction to U.S. attorneys to, to not enforce the law, I, I think that that's a, a violation of um, of their basic charge. Uh, that said, I do, uh, of course, you do have to prioritize resources. I understand that. You can say, you know, we're going to focus more on, on these crimes rather than these crimes. I get that. You can't enforce every single edict and law and statute with 100% um, efficiency. Uh, you do have to prioritize, and I, I'm not saying that's what A.G. Holder was doing. If, again, if there's some blanket, you know, we're not going to prosecute this, that's different. Uh, but I think every attorney general says, you know, we want to focus on gang offenses or MS-13 or gun offenses in the inner city or something, when you put more resources than that, by definition, you're, you're putting fewer resources in other areas. Um, but, but even the, the, sec the second point on that is mandatory minimums, even if they're not imposed after a trial, they impact the plea bargain process, right? I mean, it's the very fact that there is a mandatory minimum in the federal system. You have this, this phenomenon called stacking. Uh, where, you know, every single crime you commit, let's say you're a, a marijuana dealer uh, and you, you engage in five mar uh, marijuana deals, small-time marijuana deals, and you have a gun on your ankle of, uh, on each one, um, you can get a mandatory sentence for each one of those offenses. They're stacked. And there's a guy out in Utah where this exactly happened to him. He got 55 years for just a handful of small marijuana deals because he had a gun in his house when they raided his home. 55 years mandatory minimum because... That's what it was in the statute. Those sorts of things impact those plea negotiations where the prosecutor just comes in and says, take it or leave it. You either take 10 years in prison or you're going to face 50 if you go to trial. And so even if you think you're innocent, you have an enormous incentive to plead guilty. And we see this over and over again, frankly. We see it in, in what we call girlfriend cases at the federal level where a, a girlfriend will answer the phone for her boyfriend who's a drug dealer, and then the drug dealer gets, gets picked up by the feds and then the girlfriend is now part of that conspiracy because she said, here, here's the phone. You can sell this person drugs. They say, well, if you don't flip and, and work your way up the system, then you're going to get this mandatory sentence. She doesn't have anybody to flip on, so she goes to prison for 10 years. Meanwhile, her drug dealer boyfriend can flip on several people, and he gets out in two or three. Uh, so so the, the existence of these long sentences impacts the plea bargain process, even if it doesn't get to a judge. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize how the process works. And, and even the 5% is still, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of cases at the federal and state levels combined every year, even at that small number. Uh, I mean, just since 1995 when we had the federal safety valve, we're talking about about 100,000 people who have taken advantage of, of exceptions to the federal drug trafficking mandatory minimums. Uh, so the number, even at the percentage, but the absolute number of people that are affected is, is still quite large. Um, to the second point, Yes, I mean, there's, there's just absolutely no excuse for for what happened out in um, in Parkland uh, to the degree that, that law enforcement or anybody else was involved in in juking the statistics to reflect a lower crime rate just by pretending that crime doesn't happen. I mean, that's unacceptable. Uh, but we see that in a lot of cases where the incentives are, are structured in that way. And part of, of what we say is that we shouldn't be saying, you know what you're you're going for a target crime rate of X, and therefore you're going to get these uh, these bonuses and incentives because that does create that disincentive to, to juke the stats a little bit. Um, it should never be about just not enforcing the law. It should be about enforcing 
uh, reasonable laws. The laws should be reasonable, and they should be enforced reasonably. Uh, and, in, and in both the cases I think that you cited, neither one of those things happened. Uh, but that's part of the problem. We have to fix those sorts of things. Right. Do you think, um, uh, or do you have any anecdotal evidence or statistics to, to, to tell us um, how the judges feel about what's going on? Yeah, you know, so unlike prosecutors, um, judges are, are often prohibited by the, their ethical code from engaging in the political process. So here in Florida, for instance, you might go to a, a state committee meeting and, and you get a parade of prosecutors who stand up and say, well, we need this change or that change, and, and sheriffs will stand up and say, we need this change or that change. You don't see that from judges because they're, they're prohibited by their oath from uh, participating in the political process. Um, but when they have the opportunity, either when they're writing opinions or when they're giving, uh, when they have to give out a sentence and they're apologizing to the defendants, or when they retire from the bar and, and they're giving speeches, um, it's it's nearly unanimous. They, their hands are tied by these mandatory minimum laws. And when they they see, in fact, we just had a federal judge retire several weeks back and cited specifically the fact that he was forced over and over again to hand down sentences he knew were just completely unjust and wrong. And he said he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't wake up and go into the office and know that he was going to ruin several people's lives unjustly again, and he retired from the bench because he, he was unwilling to break the law. He, he took an oath to uphold the law, and the law requires that he does a certain thing, and, and we don't want judges to, to break the law or impose their own will. They should follow the law. We just want the law to be different. And so he retired from the bench, so he didn't have to do that again. And this is not the first time that's happened. Uh, so in states around the country and at the federal level, judges are nearly unanimous. And there are some outliers, but they're nearly unanimous in their rejection of mandatory minimums because they're on the ground. They see these cases every day. They actually apologize to defendants when they're imposing the sentence. Uh, and they say, you know, you, you deserve punishment. You committed a crime. I would punish you this way. But instead, I'm, my hands are tied and I'm forced to punish you in this other way that I know is wrong. Nobody, nobody thinks it's right. And, in fact, you know, you mentioned plea bargaining earlier and the number of cases that go to trial. What's interesting is the cases that go to trial are almost, the result, are almost always the result of rejected plea bargain. So you'll get a case where the prosecutor will offer the defendant, say, three years in prison, and the mandatory minimum is 20 years. And then the person says, I'm innocent of this offense. You see this a lot in self-defense cases in Florida uh, where a gun is, is involved. We have a mandatory minimum for gun crimes. And so they'll offer three years, and then they'll go to trial, and they'll be rejected. The jury will say, you know, self-defense, we don't buy it, so we think you're, you're guilty of the offense. And now the judge is forced to give 20 years. Well, at, at that point, and it might be over the judge's objection, at that point there isn't a single person in the process. You know, obviously the defense attorney – uh, you know, the, the prosecuting attorney, the judge, no one thinks that 20 years is the appropriate sentence. Even the prosecutor thought public safety would be, uh, would be protected with three years. And nevertheless, simply because there's a mandatory minimum on the books, the judge has to impose 20 years. Now, what that means, in effect, is that you have a 17-year penalty simply for exercising your constitutionally guaranteed right to a fair trial. And whereas if the mandatory minimum were not on the books, you wouldn't have that what we call the trial penalty. If you think you're innocent of an offense and you exercise your constitutionally guaranteed right to a fair trial and require that the government that's out to deprive you of your liberty, that they were that you require that they prove every element of the offense beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt, 
If you do that, then you're faced with 17 years in prison extra, merely for exercising the constitutional right. We think that's just fundamentally wrong, and it exists solely because the mandatory minimum is on the books. If you change that, you wouldn't have that same sort of trial penalty. But if that particular person refused the three-year plea bargain and went to trial and was convicted of the crime that he committed, and I'm not trying to be cavalier about it, that's a choice he or she made. That was the risk that he or she made when she decided to turn down the three-year plea bargain. And I, I got to believe if the, that the the defense counsel should have probably said to that to that uh, a person, "Look, you take this plea bargain, you get you get out in three years. If we go to trial and we lose, you could get twenty, and we can try and appeal it. But I don't know that we'll get it overturned. But you could be looking at twenty years." That's a decision, at least I'm a, if I'm understanding the law properly, that's a decision that the defendant makes. And when the defendant walks into the courtroom after his counsel has struck the plea bargain with the prosecutor, it is the judge that verifies that he understands what he or she is doing. So the idea that this is an innocent victim, the person, the the, the, the person made the choice to say, no, I want to take my chances in court. And if, if there was disclosure to that person that showed him or her, if you take the plea bargain, you get three. If you don't take the plea bargain, we go to trial and we lose, you could be 20 in jail. Uh, I can't believe that, that the defendants are not apprised of the risk that they're taking by turning down the plea bargain. And, 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 go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I would just say, to that I would, I would say, say two things. One, you're right, that, that in most cases defendants are aware of the, of the risk. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case in all cases. Here in Florida we have a 25-year mandatory minimum uh, for simple possession or illegal possession of 44 um, opioid pills. So if you have 44, or at the time at least, of this person's conviction, if you possess 44 painkiller pills illegally, the mandatory minimum sentence was 25 years in prison. Uh, they called it, it was drug trafficking. Um, and so there, there's a case of a person who was convicted under that statute, and she had the opportunity to plead guilty, to provide what they call substantial assistance, which is to say uh, she could have set up other drug deals, uh, busted other drug dealers, and then they would have they would have moved away from the 25 years. And for months, the police were calling her. The, the state attorney's office was calling her. She, they were trying to get her to work and try to provide substantial assistance, and she just never did. And whether she could or she couldn't or whatever or wouldn't, she just didn't do it. And so finally, it was about six months later, and it was time for her sentencing. And again, the, the mandatory minimum was 25 years. She had no criminal history whatsoever. Um, and uh, it goes to sentencing, and the sentencing judge says, well, I've got to give you 25 years. And her response was, well, can't you just give me house arrest? Can't you give me probation? And the judge just sort of sat there dumbfounded. Because this was several years down the line. She had all these opportunities, and she just had no idea that what she was facing was 25 years. Now, granted, that's probably an outlier offense but, or, or circumstance, but it does happen, and probably happens more often than you think it does, because 
most of the people who engage in these sorts of petty crimes and, and even serious offenses, they just don't weigh out the, they're not rational actors who are saying, like, okay, now I know the sentence and I'm going to engage in this behavior because there's an X percentage chance I'm going to get caught, multiply that by the time I'm going to have to spend in prison, and yes, okay, it's still, it's still profitable for me to engage in this behavior. Most of them are just not like that. Uh, so that assumes that they even know the sentence in the first place. Most of the time they just don't have a clue what the sentence is. Uh, but second, even if they do know. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you another question. Finish your point. Oh, so, so the, the, the second point would be, yes, defendants make their decisions about the relative risk of going to trial. But they make them against the backdrop of the structure as provided by the statute. What we're saying is that right now, the structure against which defendants have to make that choice is tilted so heavily in favor of the state that you almost certainly get unjust outcomes, right? I mean, imagine that, that, it's, uh, that it's just something as simple as jaywalking, but the, the mandatory minimum is life in prison. Well, even if you're not guilty of the offense, there's no, no chance that you're going to, to turn down the, the plea offer. Prosecutor comes to you and says, you can spend six months in jail, uh, you know, lose your job, lose your house, uh, you know, strain on your family, or if you go to trial and you're convicted, you get life in prison. Well, you're going to, what are you going to do, right? I didn't do it, but, well, okay, I'm going to take the six months. Uh, the same way, right? So now that's an extreme example. It doesn't happen. I don't want anybody to think that that's, a, that's an actual occurrence. It's a theoretical exercise to describe the problem. And right now, the, the scales of justice are tilted so heavily toward the state with these massive lengthy mandatory minimums and stacking on top of it, that even innocent people are forced to take plea bargains to avoid these things. What we're saying is we should recalibrate the system against which these choices are made so that it better reflects a balance in the system and that these people are not risking decades in prison for the simple exercise of a fundamentally guaranteed constitutional right, uh, that you just shouldn't be punished. I mean, and then perhaps it's a philosophical difference that we can't, uh, we won't be able to to, to figure out today, but our position is simply that that putting somebody in prison for decades at a time when public safety doesn't demand it merely because they exercise a constitutional right is just, is just fundamentally wrong. So, so let me let me move to a broader issue, if I could. As as we have a divided country, Democrat, Republican, and right Republican, and left Democrats, and middle Republicans, and middle Democrats. But we have basically a divided country. Um, and we see what's going on. We see that, that Michael Flynn gets uh, indicted for lying to the FBI and, and basically uh, is bankrupt because of his legal fees. And now there's a possibility that the judge in the court was corrupted uh, through the FBI. Uh, but... There's, there's no financial recourse to him, and and we look at other things that are going on. What do you think that the American people, not the people who have committed crimes, what do you think the American people think about the criminal justice system in the United States? Well, you know, unfortunately, I think for, for any number of reasons, people are losing faith in the criminal justice system, in part for what you just described. Uh, you know, for the last several years at CPAC, Pat Nolan of the American Conservative Union Foundation has had a, a panel 
on prosecutorial abuse, on how uh, both at the state and federal levels, the, the existence of just simply thousands of laws that don't have any sort of mens rea requirement or intent requirement, where, you know, the old saying is that any good prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Or back in Soviet Russia, they would say, you know, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. They don't have to show you the crime first and then bring the man. Just bring me the man and I'll find the crime. Um, that's sort of where we find ourselves today. And and, and, and whether it's Flynn or, or any number of people, I mean, you've, you've got Senator Ted Stevens who was kind of railroaded, and, and there's a lot of different cases where um, where it's not a, a traditional crime, you know, murder, rape, robbery, uh, what we call these malum in se crimes. Um, we have a lot of what we call malum prohibitum crimes. They're crimes merely because the state says that they're crimes. Regulatory offenses. Uh, these, these things can be, they add up and they give the government so much power over everybody's day-to-day lives that, uh, and there's a book actually, Three Felonies a Day. The, the average is that most Americans commit about three felonies a day. So if you run afoul of the wrong U.S. attorney or you run afoul of the wrong law enforcement officer and they want to ruin your life, they can ruin your life. And over time, I think you see enough of those examples to where people do tend to lose faith in, in the justice system. Um, and, I, and I don't mean to, to denigrate the entire system. My personal preference would be that we would have dramatically fewer laws that were dramatically better enforced. And I, you know, I, I think that we have too many murders. We have too many rapes. We have too many armed robberies. My wife was robbed at gunpoint. The person who robbed her is, is thankfully in prison for 30 years. It was a well-deserved sentence for a career criminal. Those kinds of, of, of things need to be enforced, I think, with greater um, efficiency and with greater vigor, and I think we spend way too much time trying to focus on things that don't actually harm a lot of people. Uh, it takes too much much resources. We put too many people in prison for them, uh, too much prosecutorial time, and those things tend to drain people's confidence in the system. You look across the street and you say, well, why is that guy still being able to sell drugs across the street? Why is, why is my son's murderer still not behind bars or even caught? Uh, and meanwhile, you have have uh, all these prosecutorial resources going for, say, regulatory offenses or some environmental offense that could be done with civil law. And I think that erodes faith in the system. Uh, and I, there's, just, there's just a whole lot of work that can be done to improve it. I wanted to go back and ask you a question about something you said earlier. Um, because I have a, my recollection, which may not be correct, but I have a recollection that um, there are in the time that I was in Ohio and the time that I was living in New Jersey, and Don would know this better than me, uh, I was thinking that there were judges who actually ran for their judicial position as politicians. In Texas, they do. In New Jersey, they're, they're, um, uh, they're appointed. Uh, you know, it, uh, uh, we're a republic. In some states, they run. Some they're impo- uh, uh, appointed. Uh, New Jersey, they're appointed by the governor, um, um, governor, and then on the municipal level, they're uh, appointed by the by the uh, municipality. Here in Florida, and, they're, uh, they're uh, elected. And if that's not political, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. but but my point is is that there are there are states. Texas being one, I think perhaps Ohio another, and I don't know how many others. But there are places in this country where judges run 
for office as politicians. So uh, is that a good thing, or should that be more widespread? Because the people then have a say in the person. You can review his or her judgments, or should it not be a political situation? Yeah, I, you know, I can see arguments on both sides. My, my personal opinion, and Sam does not take a position on this, but my personal opinion, and maybe it's just being a native Floridian and seeing this, this system my whole life, maybe that's just a bias that I haven't identified yet. I actually like the idea of elected judges uh, because of that, because exactly of the accountability that you described. Uh, I wish that, they, that we had more transparency in the system so that voters could be a little more familiar with uh, a judge's sentencing patterns than that we have now. And, in fact, Florida just passed, and we're waiting to see if the governor will sign it, but Florida just passed what is truly the most comprehensive and game-changing data transparency package in the entire country. Uh, Chairman Sprouse, Chris Sprouse of the Judiciary Committee in the House and Speaker Corcoran um, helped push this data bill through, and, and it will help us identify trends statewide about what's working and what's not working. And, and one of the things I'd like to see there is the ability of voters to be able to compare judges, even in their hometowns. You know, does, when, when there's a criminal docket for this guy, does he give the maximum every time? And how does that reflect our values? Does this guy over here, does he depart from the guideline range significantly more often than his, his colleagues? And how does that reflect our values? And then when it comes time for, uh, for an election, you can hold that person accountable. And, and I, so I actually like the idea of, of elected judges, at least in that capacity. I, I don't know if it would hold for, say, appellate judges or anything like that, but circuit court judges who have the ability to sentence criminal defendants, um, to me it's always made sense that they should run for office like, like a state attorney, like a public defender, uh, like a legislator. Uh, to me that makes a, a lot of sense, but I do wish we had more transparency in the system so voters could compare and contrast their options and see how they reflect their values. At the, at the federal level, the framers of the Constitution decided that Appointments to the to the Supreme Court should be life appointments, and and many of the uh, and the the direct reports into the the Supreme Court, the uh, appellate courts, are also life appointments. Are you opposed to life appointments for judges? Uh, man, that's a tough one. I, I go back and forth on this question, and and uh, it seems like it's debated here in Florida every couple of years. I get the and I don't want to ever second guess the wisdom of the founders. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider myself uh, more politically or, or socially astute than James Madison or Alexander Hamilton. But um, so I, I get the reason for putting them there in, for, for life. They they're supposed to be an independent branch. They're supposed to be able to resist the political pressures and the whims of the moment of the electorate and so on. Um, at the same time, I also see the, the potential cost of putting them there for life. Which is if you get a bad one, who, but but somebody who has just not done anything that's impeachable, um, it can have widespread ramifications uh, for a very long time. So I, I get both sides, and I guess I'm just not prepared to say one way or the other whether uh, whether we have the same fat rule. Well, in New Jersey, if you get re appointed to two consecutive seven-year terms, you then get tenure. So it turns mm. into a live appointment, Doc? But you have you're to be reappointed. The first time you're appointed, and if you got reappointed, then you can um, you get tenure. And in the last 20 years, only one uh, judge 
has not been given that second uh, term. Yeah, here in Florida we have judicial retention elections. They're initially appointed. This is at the at least at the appellate level. Uh, they're appointed and then they're retained. But the the elections for retention are are hardly meaningful because most people just don't know who they are, right? They're not, they're hardly political in the same way that legislative races or uh, or state attorney races or certainly for governor. Um, so I think most of the time they get retained unless there's some overtly political act that becomes widespread and everyone knows who they are. But that's kind of how it works in Florida. You will pardon me for being uh, somewhat of a cynic, having been been involved with courts over four, uh, t- uh, twenty, well now almost forty years. Um, I uh, the quality of courts vary so greatly that uh, and don't forget, uh, uh, as a lawyer says, do you really want to put your faith in twelve people who couldn't get out of jury duty? Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, and the, the judges I have seen, um, been involved with, uh, I do, uh, expert witness work. And I have seen cases where, uh, the judges come up with decisions that absolutely, uh, boggle the mind. And then I've, uh, uh seen and heard of cases where, uh, uh it's clearly who, uh, who your lawyer is is going to decide the, uh, uh, the outcome of the case. I mean, uh, you know, you you have a very laudable um, uh, mission in life, and I, and I applaud you for it. But I sit here and say, uh, you know, you know, all my life I've always been told um, the, the, the judge is the best. Uh, uh, the judges are the best the money can buy, and. Um, uh, over the years, I'm sorry I have a cynical view uh, of the system. And no matter what you do, uh, one way or the other, uh, somebody's going to get a raw deal at some point. Uh, and may- maybe the b- the best solution is to find one that uh, uh, limits the opportunities. But uh, I, I, yeah, I, you know, I couldn't have said that better myself, to be honest. So Madison said in Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And if, if men were governed by angels, then no checks on government would be necessary. But unfortunately, we live in a society where uh, none of us is angels, right? So we have to design a system that limits those opportunities. And our position is that, you know, with nobody in the process being an angel and everyone being self-interested and everyone looking for opportunities for self-aggrandizement and, and uh, they're motivated by career aspirations, and uh, you know, prosecutors want to win, and judges want to be reelected, and, and public defenders want to win for their clients, and so on. Everyone is sort of out for themselves in the process. So, what system can you design that limits the opportunities for any party in the process to use the system to his or her own advantage at the expense of others? And our position is simply that a transparent system where everybody knows all of the facts and uh, there's, there are built-in mechanisms for accountability is the best we can do. And it will never approach perfection. It will never be ideal. But it will be the best we can do given, you know, a, a fallen world with incomplete information. Uh, it, it's, it's just to design this system of checks and balances. And, and it really just doesn't improve upon the system that the founders designed. It's a system of checks and balances where the legislature writes the law, the executive enforces the law to the best of its ability, 
and the judiciary takes all of the, the circumstances into account and imposes a sentence that is appropriate for the unique circumstances of that crime, and then, uh, and if there is some sort of abuse of discretion, it will be held in check both by political accountability, either for the people who are appointing these judges or the judges directly, or internal accountability through an appeals process. And that's the best we can hope for. That's the best we can do. Instead of what, what we have now, which is basically thousands of laws enforced arbitrarily and where the prosecutor is the person who chooses whether to bring a charge, what charge to bring, and then de facto the sentence as well, where there is no accountability over that decision-making process. There is no appeals process and so on for, for those, those decisions. They're all done behind closed doors. We don't know whether they work uh, better or worse than alternatives. Uh, and we just think that we can improve on that system by going back to the, the, the simple system of checks and balances that the founders provided for us. And that's basically our mission in a nutshell. Well, well let me, well, I, know we're, I know we're almost out of time, but let me ask one more question. In listening to you for the last hour, you're clearly passionate about what you think is going, what needs to be done. My concern is, if we if we want to adopt what you're professing, don't we look? Don't we have to have a different quality of judge than we have today? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and the same could be said for a different quality of politician, a different quality of state attorney, uh, or or U.S. attorney. We can always improve on the quality of of people that we entrust to engage in in these sorts of uh, decisions on behalf of society in general. Um, yeah, but but yeah, what, you're, yeah, yeah. What, you're, what, you're, what you're saying, though, is that, that the legislative process has defined what the penalty should be for certain crimes. Now what you're saying is we should eliminate those penalties and give the discretion of the judge to decide what the penalty should be for the crime if the person is found guilty. And my question is, does that take a different person? Because there is a great deal more responsibility on the part of the judge under your scenario to, to determine the wisdom of Solomon of, of what is the proper punishment as opposed to looking at the, the statutes and taking the statutes. I think it, it, that we need a different kind of person to be the judge, if you're going to give that much discretion to the judge, the judge to decide what the appropriate penalty should be. Well, A, I think that's probably right. I mean, I, we, we certainly want to make sure that the, the, the people who are charged with making these decisions are, are competent and principled and moral and so on, uh, and above reproach in a lot of ways. But uh, the same thing would hold for the state attorney who has the same sort of power now, except that power is unchecked. The, the point of the system that we're advocating for is that you don't need that the best people in place at all times because their power is distributed and checked. Uh, right now, if you have a bad state attorney or an immoral state attorney, we, we had a couple of just absolutely terrible ones here in Florida that, that lost elections. But, but right now, that person who's in office, there's no check on the power, none whatsoever. Uh, they have all of the power that we're asking to be given to the judge except none of the checks on that power. So if they decide to abuse the authority or... Uh, or, or railroad defendants into prison for decades at a time or whatever it is, there's just simply no institutional checks on that power. 
our system imposes institutional checks and distributes the power so that no individual is given so much power that they have to be a, a sort of a better person than, than average in order to wield it effectively. Uh, the whole point is that you distribute it out. You give the prosecutor the power over charging decisions. You give the judge power over sentencing decisions. And then you say if that judge abuses the discretion, then either the state or the defendant can appeal that through the process to make sure that, that no single person controls all of the power in the process the way they do now. So, it, it, again, it's, it's just going back to Madison. It's not about making sure we have the right people. It's about making sure we have the right process that checks the power of the people just in case they decide to go outside the realm of their authority or their expertise. Okay. I think we're done, Jim. Okay, well, let, let's do this. Uh, gentlemen, bring us up to speed on, on your various projects. Go, Don. Okay, what can I say? So, uh, recalculating radio seems to be going great. So We have a brand new site for 2SB Digest, and uh, uh, our book, um, uh, um, Recalculating, um, the, the book is going into its uh, now fifth edition, so we're really happy there. And um, what else can I say? <laughs> I'm gonna, I can't. You know. You know that. Uh, you know, Jiggy. I could never really toot my own horn. But anyway, that's the most I'm gonna say. <laughs> Dan, uh, what do you have for us? Bring us up to speed on everything. Terrace Gold is now over four hundred thousand page view and thirty-five thousand clicks to Amazon. Um, oh, wow. Bringing a, spe- bringing a special offer out starting on April 1st of the original three books in the trilogy on an, uh, a flash memory stick so you can have 38 hours of uninterrupted terror um, <laughs> with, the, with the books. <laughs> um, we, uh, uh, we just, over the, this past weekend, were invited at the foundation to be a participant in the Honor flight for Fort Myers. Honor flight is where veterans are flown with a companion to Washington D.C. to tour the, the the memorials and the monuments in the city as a thank you for their service. We're also going to be participating in Honor flight in in uh, April, May, and June up in Tampa, and um, things are just going really well. So I, I can't complain. Fantastic. Well. Uh before we go, uh, Greg, how do we get a hold of you online? Well, first, thanks a lot for having me again. I really appreciate it. and This was a, a fun and lively conversation. Uh, if you guys want to learn more about FAM, we're at www.fam.org, F-A-M-M.org. Uh, you can learn more about mandatory minimums and our work in the state and federal level. And uh, everything you want to know about mandatory minimums is going to be right there at FAM.org. So thank you very much. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you guys. It's been, uh, it's been fun and, uh, we will definitely talk to you soon. Thank you guys. Thank you again. Take care. Appreciate it. There goes Don Mazzella, Dan Perkins. IQI Rizzoli joins us back next week. And that is that. We bid you adieu.